Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every episode, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers to importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. I'm very, very excited for this show today. I have a longtime dear friend joining us, uh, John Fisher. He is a professor of wine, beverage, and hospitality management at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. And we are going to deviate slightly from our traditional uh, beer path in that we are going to be including another grain fermented beverage in sake. Uh, John is an expert. Um, He has John, you have an actual, like, real certification that took you a very long time to get, and not very many people have it, correct? Well, three whole days, yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) um, Certified sake professional. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a certification that's done by John Gauntner, who is arguably the most uh, well-known Western sake expert. And uh, we were lucky enough that he did it actually in Brooklyn, so I um, traveled down the Hudson, went to Brooklyn for um, three days, and had a very intensive registra- um, course with him. Well, we tasted over 90 sake in three days and got really deeply into the technical side of sake. So um, that's the certification that I went through. I'm hoping to get the advanced level, which requires a trip to Japan. I just have to get somebody to pay for it. <laughs> All right, so any listeners out there who care to sponsor somebody's sake education, you know, I'll, please feel I'll, free to I'll reach pay, out. I'll pay it back in spades. <laughs> so let's back up a little uh, as far as, I mean, you, you've taught so many classes uh, at the Culinary Institute of America. We're going to refer to it from here on out at CIA because that's just a lot uh, easier way to refer to it. And we were founded before the other CIA, too. Yes. So for DC listeners, we still do have a pretty good uh, pocket of DC listeners. We are not talking about the CIA in Langley. We are talking about the culinary school in uh, New York. Um, But so you've taught all kinds of classes. A lot of the classes that you teach right now, you know, center around beer specifically, but you cover a lot of different fermented beverages within that course, correct? Yeah. um, At this point, I teach um, it's actually kind of daunting when I list them all, um, but I teach um, a bunch of beverage courses. So there's Art and Science of Brewing, um, be- <laughs> the horribly named but great class, Beer and Fermented Beverages. It's, it's, that's such a pedestrian name, but it's a great class. Um, Spirits and Mixology, Advanced Wine, um, Advanced Principles of Service Management, and I think that might be it. There might be one or two others. But basically, beverage classes are, are, what, are what I'm teaching wholly now. And we do have a great beverage team in place uh, at school now. In fact, we were joined by Christy Dufault, who had been teaching wine at our Napa Valley campus, uh, Greystone, for the last 12 years. And she and her husband, Jordan McKay, who is a, a great beverage writer, beverage and food writer, decided to join us on the East Coast. And so now we have a new member to our, um, on our beverage team. And we have, a, we have four people who actually like each other and agree. 
uh, which is which is a bit of a change historically for the the beverage team at the culinary. Um, anyway, so we do have the beverage management specialization in the bachelor's program, and um, and I I teach every one of the classes that's part of it, but not all at the same time. Okay, I was going to say if if that was the case, your semester load would be uh, unfairly aggressive. I feel like I would be teaching overtime yeah. um, on overtime every semester. Luckily, I have team members who um, who do their part. Nice. So for the beer and fermented beverages class, which I feel like you know we should get some some branding people on that to to figure out a new, <laughs> new name or something yeah. um yeah i didn't name it i didn't name it but i do teach it but you do cover cider sake and why is yes. why is including sake specifically important when it comes to beer education well first of all it is beer um it's fermented grain Last time I checked, it's not rice wine, which people still call it, because rice is not a fruit. And it just makes me crazy that people still call it rice wine. Um, in fact, very smart people sometimes still call it rice wine, but it isn't. Um, we're actually in the process of what well, we're watching, the construction of a sake brewery just up the street from school. So the reason we're doing sake at all is because, and first of all, it's pronounced sake, not sake. Um, for those out there, um, it's like the word socket, like a socket wrench, but without the T. So it's sake. And um, there's a producer, Asahi Shuzo, which makes dasai sake. And um, it's like saying Anheuser-Busch makes Budweiser. Asahi Shuzo makes dasai. And dasai is one of the great sake from Japan. They decided that they want to produce sake in the United States, and they chose the East Coast because it's closer to New York, which is obviously a very important center for wine and beverage and restaurants, um, but also the Northeast Corridor in general. And also it's closer to Europe, so they'll be able to ship product a little bit more easily to Europe. Uh, they are also in... Um, in association with us at the, at the culinary. About six years ago, five, six years ago, uh, my then uh, teaching partner and, and a guest, previous guest on the show, um, Doug Miller, we're, we were sitting in our cubicle at school and we got uh, an email that the president of the school wanted to see us. And we were a little worried. That could go in many directions. We did, yes. <laughs> Thankfully, went in a good one. Um, so we went to President Ryan's office, and the vice president of academics was also in the office, and we were even more scared. But then President Ryan said, well, um, a sake brewery is going to be built, built nearby, and we're going to be working with them, so you two have to become sake experts. And we said, okay, great wait a minute, we have to become sake experts? So we started studying, um, and I took that, that certification program, and we are going to be working with Asahi Shuzo to promote sake to Americans, try to get Americans to drink sake with everyday food. And I think that Americans tend not to realize that Japanese everyday food is a lot like our everyday food. You know, sushi is not everyday food in Japan. It's a, it's a special event, special occasion meal in, in Japan. And here, you know, they don't have gas station sushi like we do. 
for better or worse. But when we found out that we were going to have a sake brewery built, it's actually less than a mile from campus on the grounds of an old stop and shop of all things. We realized that we had to find a way to get Americans to understand it in a, in a, a simpler way and to understand that there are sake for just about every kind of food um, that, that ends up on the American table. So if you could break that down for our listeners a little bit as far as, I mean, there are multiple different styles, there are multiple different, you know, ways that uh, sake is served, um, but just kind of like a basis synopsis of like, this is why this beverage does make sense, especially in the food realm. I think that the sake that most people in this country have tried was warm from a, a a cedar box at a sushi bar, and it came from a machine that heated it up probably way too hot. Uh, now, it is true that sake is the only fermented beverage that can properly be served at multiple temperatures from ice cold to screaming hot, neither of which is really appropriate for the beverage, but they're Technically, it can be one of those, either of those two. But that said, the range of flavors in sake is huge. Uh, the premium product made by Dasai is called, well, actually, they make one that's like very expensive called Beyond, but they're, basically their flagship is called Dasai 23. And that's a sake where the rice has been milled down to only 23% of its original size. And it's a premium product. It's not inexpensive, but it's an absolutely beautiful, crystalline, delicate beverage that is only appropriate for certain kinds of delicate foods. But there is super funky sake. There's sake that smells and tastes like mushrooms. Um, there is There are two types of sake. They're called... Um, uh, Kimoto and Yamahai, which are made with a slightly different yeast starter. And they can be funky and big and great for braised short ribs and things like that. So there are sake. The, the range is huge. Um, and there's sparkling sake. There's a slightly cloudy style called Nigori, which technically is not unfiltered, but that's the technical point. Um, but that's great with certain types of fried food. So there's there are almost as many kinds of sake as there are our kind of beer. Um, and most um, Americans have not tried the full range of flavors yet. And they haven't had a sake yet that goes with meatloaf. And there is sake that goes with meatloaf. 100%. I feel, I mean, you know, this is obviously not a beverage where I've specialized before, but I have tried enough of it and experienced enough of it with different kinds of food to know that you can almost treat this the way you treat beer, especially getting people into it where you can ask the question, Hey, what is, what is, what do you usually drink? Right. Are you a gin and tonic drinker? Do you prefer, you know, prefer Cabernet Sauvignon? You can kind of have a bridge because there is such a variety. Yes, that's true. And in fact, it's kind of the way um, a lot of Japanese traditionally have, have drunk sake, which was, just drink their favorite one. They'll go to a restaurant and just order the sake that they always order. Um, and there's really nothing wrong with that because one thing about sake, there's a saying that sake doesn't fight with food. Um, it tends to recede from the table and support food in a way that 
even if you say that wine supports food, wine is a little bit more in your face because of the bright acidity that it has. And beer is present, our beer is present sometimes because of its weight and its body. But sake is more subtle, and it, and it does kind of lurk in the shadows and do its work quietly. Um, and because of that, it can be a fantastic um, com- uh, companion for food and a flexible one in that that person's favorite sake goes with a broad range of food. And as far as people kind of dipping their toes into uh, sake and, and, and getting into what might be a good kind of like intro or gateway is there style or or a, a brand that you recommend well there, there there are two ways to look at this one through the style that they should start with and the other way would be with the product they should buy to start off with so i'll start with that in that there is a packaging method of sake called cup sake so the Cup sake is a single portion. It's usually about um, either 187 or 200 milliliters, and it's in a single cup. And it's, it's funny, you'll, if you're in Tokyo after work, you'll see business people on the, tr- on the subway drinking from these little aluminum and little glass cups, and it's, a, it's sake. And it is a single portion. It looks like a fancy uh, yogurt container is, is kind, of how I, kind of how I equate it. Yeah, and 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 in fact, there are even um, like juice box style boxes. I think is one. There's one called Lucky Dog. Um, that's a little turquoise box with a little dog waving at you on the from the box, and it's delicious sake. And the beverage is is should be taken seriously, even though it's in a little juice box. Um, I highly recommend that brand. Um, look for that little turquoise box. Um, also, um, any time you can find a cup, aluminum or glass cup sake, they're usually six, seven bucks at the front cash register at a liquor store or a package store. I highly recommend just grabbing one. Just it, you know, don't worry about what the style is. Don't worry about the whether it's Daiginjo or Junmai or Ginjo or Futsushu or Honjozo, all these Japanese words that you don't really need that at first. But get one, put it in the refrigerator, drink it cold, and have it with a hot dog. Have it with um, a ham and cheese sandwich. Just try it. And um, it's, you know, it's a pretty low barrier um, to entry when it's, five, six, seven bucks. And some of these sake at five, six, seven bucks are some of the best made. So, and there's, there's so many cool things happening. Um, one of the hottest things that a lot of hipsters like is called flour yeast, uh, whereby the University of Tokyo Agriculture Department has isolated yeast from the flowers of different fruits and different flowers. And they're using that, they propagate that yeast. So there's marigold yeast sake and strawberry yeast sake. And these, you know, they carry some of the flavors of the fruits and the flowers. The marigold one is really cool. Um, I think it's Amabuki is the producer that makes those. And the different flower yeasts are just little glass cups and the label is a different color to tell to differentiate between the different yeasts. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff going on, and it's affordable, and therefore, I think, approachable. So that's one way to look at it. Get a package that's affordable and small, and just try it. 
Now, the other thing is to talk about the um, the ratings, the, the the quality ratings of sake, which is determined largely by how much rice is removed from the um, original brown rice kernel. And the percentage that's left is called semi-boi, and that determines what the sake can be called. So if it's um, milled down to 70%, it can be called honjozo, 70% or less. 60% or less, it can be called ginjo, and 50% or less can be called daigenjo. Now, one of the problems with this is that a lot of neophyte, snobby sake drinkers will say, oh, well, I only drink daigenjo. Well, that's just kind of stupid because it's like saying, I only drink Grand Cru Chablis or I only drink first growth Bordeaux. And it's not Okay, it's not stupid, it's, an, it's, it's silly, because the lower grades very often are better for everyday food. And, and, and that sake, the Desai 23 that I mentioned, it would not go with short ribs, braised short ribs. It would run away and hide. Um, so you need something funkier and bigger, and that would probably be one of the lower grades. Now, where this becomes convenient is that the lower grades tend to be less expensive, and they tend to be more likely to go with everyday American food. So if you see something called a honjozo, it's going to be affordable, and it's going to be a little bit more rustic than the super expensive, fancy Junmaidai Genjo. Um, so that said, there, there are basically two ways to approach sake as a neophyte. One, buy the small packages, get it in the cup or the, the, bag, you know, the juice box, or go for some of the lower grades because they'll probably be better with your corn dog. <laughs> I mean, I think about one of my favorite wines is Vino Verde. If it's like $8 or less, just pairs, pairs of life. You know, you can pair that with yeah. <laughs> just about anything. And, and, and chocolatey. And, and, you know, I... <sighs> You know, people think that that wine and beverage experts are are drinking the fanciest things at home all the time, and I just get whatever rosé is hanging around. And you know, rosé is my red wine for the summer, and it's my white wine in the winter. Rosé is rosé wine is it goes with so many different things, and I don't care whose it is as long as it's about ten bucks a bottle, and and I buy it by the case, you know, and, and yes, there are times when you want something special, which of course, special doesn't always mean expensive, but sometimes you want something that is a, a unique experience. But for the most part, those of us who do this for a living, just, you know, we, we know what it's supposed to taste like. We know what it goes with and we just do what's easy. I mean, that's why at every single beer festival, the people who actually make and work in beer are in line for the Pilsners. Yep. And, you know, it's funny, um, at our events, because, you know, we do have our brewery on campus, and Hutch is such a great brewer, um, our most popular beer is almost always our Belgian wheat beer, our Mise en Place Wit, which is, you know, coriander and orange peel, and, and we have one uh, quite a few awards with it. You know, it, it is a gold medal winning. Uh, it was the best wheat beer in New York State. And it tends to be the most popular because not that many people in New York State make it. And it's the beer that people who don't want double IPAs 
want to drink. It's easier to drink and, and it's great with food. And, you know, to, to bring this back to the world of sake, sake almost in general is that kind of beverage that is not going to be in your face. Now, there are American producers who are making some really cool stuff. And that I have had hopped um, sake that was made by Brooklyn Kura. Kura, by the way, K-U-R-A, is the Japanese word for brewery. So Brooklyn Kura is a tiny sake brewery in Industry City down in Brooklyn. And they're making some really cool stuff. They had a rosé hopped sake that they made that was fantastic. Um, they also had a three koji sour sake that they made that was absolutely lovely. It, it, was, it wasn't horribly sour. It wasn't you know, really um, aggressively sour. It was just lightly tart. And they used a combination of white, black, and yellow koji um, to fill out the flavors. And it was really just lovely. So I want to loop us back a little bit into, you know, people getting into the beverage itself. We've talked about, you know, uh, how to kind of look for buying sake in a store situation. But another way to do it is to order um, at a restaurant that has a list I wondered if you could walk us through maybe um, if you're at an establishment that has sake offered, if there's maybe some red or green flags that you look at. You know, for example, if you're at a brewery or if you're at a uh, restaurant and you see, you know, them dunking the faucet into the, you know, glass while they're pouring the beer, that's, you know, maybe like, "Mm, maybe I'll go for a cocktail kind of thing. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) um, you know, are there certain places where you, you know, you look at a list or you look at the way somebody talks about sake or, or something that makes you say like, oh, this is a good place to, to try. Um, I think the first um, warning bell would be if they sell hot sake from a machine with a bag in a box sitting on top of it. Um, it's not necessarily going to be bad, but it's probably not going to be great. Um, one of the reasons that sake of that type is served that warm is to drive off lower alcohols that are um, more aggressive and kind of um, then don't taste as good because alcohol dissipates with heat and especially the lower alcohols with the lower boiling points those are going to be the first ones to dissipate so if they are heating it with the machine and it's a bag in a box they might still have some good sake that's going to be packaged in bottles or maybe cup sake like I described before. But it's probably not a sake-centric place. Um, Of course, you can do your research ahead of time and go to a place that is known for having a great sake program. Um, I think it's still open. There's a a bar and kind of casual restaurant in the Lower East Side of Manhattan called High Collar. And they're known for their sake program, even though it's tiny. It, it's just it's it's almost like a little alley of a tasting restaurant. So I think that going in to a place and seeing how they treat sake is a big thing. Like you said, if the faucet goes into the beer glass, they're not treating the beer right. Um, if they're if they are serving warm sake and they're warming it in a water bath, that's doing it the right way. Um, when you see um, that they serve 
sake at different temperatures. That some will be served cold and some will be served warm. Um, and there are sake that can be served both ways. And uh, some uh, a restaurant or a bar that takes sake seriously might offer the same sake in two different temperatures, which is a really cool thing to try to see what the, how the flavors are going to be different depending on how you know, the temperature at which it was served. Um, also, fairly obviously, if it's a, an extensive list and it's well organized, um, I would say if it's organized in a way that helps you to discern what the style of each sake is instead of them all being lumped in together, um, that would be one um, tip-off that it would be a good place to drink sake. And I think in general, it's probably going to be, for better or worse, um, bigger cities that have more, offer more opportunities to taste sake properly and to be able to have um, an opportunity to try different kinds. Because just like, you know, if you're going to have a um, Czech Pilsner with your seafood appetizer, but then move on to a Doppelbach for your pork schnitzel, you want to be able to do the same kind of thing with sake, where I would start with the Decide 23 with my raw fish appetizer, but then I'd want a um, Honjozo Tokubetsu or, or a one of those, the, the ones I talked about with the different starters, the Kimoto and the Yamaha, um, with my Tonkatsu, you know, and uh, the different pork, fried pork cutlet. Sounds like um, very similar. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just it. It yeah. is, you know, and, and, and the reason Tokatsu is in Japan is because of German immigrants that went to Japan and were making schnitzel. They just put a different kind of sauce on it in Japan. So, and, and, and anyway, to be able to progress through a meal, uh, you can tell if you look at a sake list, if you're going to be able to do that. But by the same token, sometimes you just want a hot dog at a at a hot dog stand. You know, I heard that the Gray's Papaya actually closed, or Papaya King on the Upper East Side um, closed for good, which is a little sad. But sometimes you just want a hot dog and a and a papaya drink. And with sake, sometimes you just want um, you know simple street food and a sake that goes with it. So um, as to how to know where to do it. You can probably sense it, like I said, that, that the, the machine with the box on top of it um, making screaming hot sake is probably a bad sign. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk sake. And uh, do you have a, I mean, this might be a loaded question, but do you have a rough idea when this uh, brewery will be opening up in uh, Hyde Park? I've heard November oh. is when they're going to start producing liquid. Um the I, I did finally get inside. Um, they, I mean, the the company is sparing no expense. They're spending thirty million bucks on this project, and they hired Cesar Pelli, um, one of the great American architectural firms um, based in Boston. Cesar Pelli is the one who did the work here in Hyde Park. I think it's the first time we have a Cesar Pelli building in Hyde Park, New York. Um, and um, got inside, saw the fermentation tanks. Um, I think they're going to be producing 300,000 gallons of sake a year, which is a serious amount of sake. Um, and they're, they're, at least in their materials, they're saying that they're hoping that the product here will actually even surpass what they make in Japan. 
which is also saying a lot um, because they're already one of the, the, the most recognized and respected breweries. But they're, you know, they're very modern in approach. Um, they've left behind a lot of the kind of moribund tradition that the Japanese tend to cling to. Uh, for instance, they use a, a centrifuge instead of the classic uh, Gabuta plate and frame filter. They're using a centrifuge, which, as you know, is used in craft brewing extensively. Um, and this is craft brewing, just with rice uh, in, instead of rice and barley. I think the brand name is going to be Dasai Blue, and that'll be their American brand. And we should see something starting in November. And eventually they say they will be using American rice. So that's going to be a big deal as well. So starting to use American products to make their sake in America. We'll have to keep our eyes out. Um, and if anybody is in the Hudson Valley area in early 2023 or mid 2023, uh, definitely check it out. So thank you so much, John. He has written books actually for real. So, you know, go on Amazon and, and buy his books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, I, I, the, I'm very proud of the mm -hmm. cheese book. It's a great um, book. That it's been a long time. I haven't written a book in a long time, but I think the cheese book holds up, and the cookbook, the Bistros and Brasseries cookbook, is a book that, well, didn't sell that well, <laughs> but I think it's a, a pretty neat cookbook, especially if you like casual French food. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been another episode of Beer Me Radio. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please reach out at Beer Me Radio on Instagram or beermeradio at gmail.com. We're available anywhere you get your podcast. Please like, subscribe, give all the stars, and we will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.